Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher barkarbanu mikol hamim, Venatan lanu et torato, Baruch atah Adonai, Noten haTorah. Amen. Amen. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, may you grant us the eyes of Mashiach Yeshua as we dive into your living word. Fill our hearts with your light. Illuminate us with the fire of the Lapid and consume us, renew us, transform us. In the merit of Mashiach Yeshua, Amen. Well, Shalom, everybody. So, day number two of having over 90% of my voice back. So, Bless the name of Hashem for that. So this is going to be very, very, very interesting because we're supposed to have TTB class and um, weather is kind of crazy, but you know, Brug Hashem. So this is not going to be a Parsha GYS. Um, I'm just going to basically do whatever happens. Uh, so we'll call it. Uh, Parsha Shemot, and we're going to be in the Basora. Probably, uh, we're not going to touch the Haftor because that's that's me and Hasis. So uh, you know, we'll roll clear of that. Um, it's so tempting to always get more into that because we got like a lot of insight, but you know, we were kind of running short on time. So there's that. But, you know, Baruch Hashem, so shouts out to my Habibi, uh, Hasis Baz. And uh, again, if you get an opportunity, please check out that Haftarah, because that was insane. So first off, uh, I want to look at the Ramban with a noon. Um, this is his commentary on Bereshit. The reason why I'm going back to Bereshit is because, you know, my tour portion is Vayeshev. And for some reason, I just don't feel like I got a lot out of Vayeshev that I was able to share. So um, I was going to check and see if he had anything in here. And if he didn't, uh, which he doesn't, this only goes to Chayesera. Okay, well, Berkashem. So that's Ramban, Volume 1, goes from Bereshit to Chayesera. So heads up to all of you out there who's looking that up. So since that's the case, I'm going to go ahead and go to the Zohar. And we just escalate things quickly around here. So Bruksham, I'm going to look at, let's see, this is, it's like I don't know why that's, Buzzing like crazy. Don't want anymore. Okay. So um, first off, since I'm already in Zohar Shemot two, I just want to bring up a few things here because what's really really interesting is that we are getting ready to, as a shul, hop into Megillah Esther, and this is an interesting time because. Esther, this account takes place at the end of the 70-year exile to Babylon. So when you really look at this timing, it's very, very interesting because here we are in the Torah portion cycle, like pretty much at the end of the Egyptian exile. 
So the exile to Mitzrayim, which, by the way, is considered like the first exile. Okay, so there are technically four, but really there are five. So if you start with Mitzrayim being number one, then you can go into Babylon. Then you can go into Persia, Media. Then you can go into Greece. Then you can go into Edom or Rome, this current exile that we're in that is so, so dark. And at the same time, makes you feel like, oh, it's not that bad. Maybe we can get used to this. So, uh, again, in the Haftarah, we talked a lot about like not being used to exile. So that's kind of interesting to where exile is not too painful and you kind of want to succumb to it. You know, it's just like we have so much technology, we have so much entertainment. Uh, life is pretty good as far as like, you know, standard of living. So, you know, there's Wi-Fi and things like that. And it's just like, yeah, but what's Wi-Fi really compared to the Beit HaMikdash, Mashiach Yeshua, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Shekinah of Hashem, the, uh, not to mention all of the proselytes, people who were so far from Judaism that, you know, which way was up didn't even matter. And, you know, here they are on fire for Hashem. And then you got all of the children of Israel who were exiled from the beginning of this, the resurrection of the dead. I mean, come on, like how much are we really going to talk about? But anyway, so I just think it's interesting because on this Shemot section here in Zohar, I'm looking at the, um, this would be the Sonsino press edition of Zohar. So uh, they are doing their thing. They said from Rabbi Shimeon's discourse on the title verse, we learn that the word Hayah, which is it shall be or it came to be, is repeated in the title quotation because the first refers to the exile in Egypt and the second refers to the Babylonian exile. So Rabbi Shimeon reinforces Ezekiel's role as a faithful prophet in his comparison of the Babylonian and Egyptian exiles. The Babylonian captivity, we learn, caused far more pain and suffering for the children of Israel than the Egyptian exile. The children of Israel were able to endure the exile in Egypt patiently, because they were familiar with the suffering of their father, the righteous Yaakov. So, you know, there's that. They are so close to Yaakov that even though they're going through really horrible suffering, they're realizing, oh yeah, our father, you know, our father Yaakov, he went through this. So that's cool. We can, we can, if he made it, we can do it. Not to mention Rabbi Griffin, a.k.a. Captain Yisrael, decided to throw down like it was okay from Pituke Kotam and Rabbi Monk and Rabbeinu Bakia all at the same time. Uh, so I'm not really sure where the source is b between those different options, but there's a acronym for Yaakov, which is Yikud, which is the unification of the name of Hashem. And then the Anav, which means humble. And then you got Kedusha, which is holiness. And then you got Brakot, which is obviously the blessings and the prayers. So 
when you look at the name of Yaakov, there's the unification of the name of Hashem with humility, holiness, and blessings. Not only reciting blessings, but Rabbi Griffin also added that we should be a blessing. And so people who are worthy of the redemption are attached and connected to Yaakov. So that was kind of cryptic in the, the ending of our Haftarah this week that I was saying, you know, may Hashem attach us to Yaakov and attach us to the Shekinah, attach us to Mashiach Yeshua. Because one who is attached to Yaakov also gets attached to the Shekinah. And remember, the Shekinah is also in exile. The Shekinah is at the gates of Rome. I mean, Mashiach is at the gates of Rome. I mean, the Shekinah. Oh, wait. What? So, Mashiach is the manifestation of Hashem. The Shekinah is the divine presence of Hashem, which is never separate from Mashiach. So, if we think on that, so now, the Shekinah being in exile... Not only is the Shekinah with B'nai Yisrael, but is also literally embodied in Mashiach Yeshua, who is at the gates of Rome. So, uh, if you look at the Shekinah being returned from exile, if you are attached to the Shekinah, that guarantees you to be returned from exile. Now, this makes me think of a verse... um, from one of the letters, let me uh, pull this up here because it's very important for us to know things like this. Okay, here we go, Brukashem. Yes, okay, so Brukashem, it is from the letter to Ephesus 113. I'm gonna pull out my OJB over here. Flippity flip flip. And I'm trying to. Um, I have a Bible that is completely notated, so I'm going to go ahead and start making sure I get on that with this. Okay, so the letter to Ephesus, literally in verse 13, it says, In Mashiach you also heard the message of Ha'emet, which is the truth, the Besora Hageula, the gospel. And it says, of Yeshuat Elokeinu. So in Mashiach, you heard the truth, the good news of redemption, which is the gospel, of the salvation of Hashem, which is yours, having also come to Amuna. So not only are you in Mashiach Yeshua, but you also have Amuna. And that's important because Amuna means you're doing something that attests to your belief, i.e., if you really, 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 really love this lady and you're a guy and everything is appropriate and kosher, you betroth her. You don't just go, oh, yeah, I love you so much. Let's, ha- let's spend the rest of our life together and not do anything about it, right? There's the the whole process that you go through for the the Erusin and the betrothal and, and the uh, Kiddushin entering underneath the hoopah and all that kind of stuff. So like Amuna is very, very important because if you have Amuna, but you're not expressing it, you're not doing anything with it, it's null and void. So it's it's nice. It's, it's warm feeling and it's uh, motivational and inspiring, but 
there is no manifestation of it. There is no um, no activity, so to speak. All right. So, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if you had Wi-Fi just kind of going out, you had a, I don't know, Wi-Fi is just a thing today. So if you had Wi-Fi, but no, no connection to it, that's what your Amuna is. If you don't, if you don't really have anything that shows that you have Amuna, you're like Wi-Fi with nothing connected to it. It's just like, woo, it's out there. It's cool. All right. Connection? No. All right. Cool. Well, everybody will not be on Facebook and everybody will not be on Instagram because those things won't work offline. <laughs> so anyway, um, enough on that. So back to this verse, it says that you did receive your chotam, your seal. Now, chotam actually is a, a, uh, a word that actually appears in Revelation, which is Hizgalut. I don't know if you remember this, but there is a passage in there talking about the, uh, the seals that are on a scroll that can only be opened by the Lamb. So there's that. But one of the, th one of the words for seal is actually signet, like a signet ring. Um, like uh, Shemot 2811, engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones, like on the Koshin. So there's that. But um, yeah, so this seal... It says we are sealed in Mashiach with the Ruach HaKodesh of promise. So if you're attached to the Shekinah, you will be, you are, you're not, not you will be, you are, you're sealed until the coming redemption. So just want to point that out. This is why it's important to be attached to the Zadik Mashiach Yeshua. Because you're sealed, you have a signet on you, you have an engraving that brings you out of the redemption. So, back to Zohar over here. So it says, Rabbi Shimon said, even though pain comes to him temporarily, someone who is accustomed to suffer pain bears his yoke and does not worry. But when pain comes to one who has spent all his days in pleasures and luxuries and is not accustomed to pain, this is complete pain and deserves weeping. See, that's the thing, is if we are people who are after the pleasures and the desires of Hashem and not our own, when he causes us to bear up underneath the yoke of the kingdom, i.e. when we are rejoicing in righteousness, hungering and thirsting for him, but yet the the lifestyle and the, the culture that we live surrounded by, inundated by, we bear up under it and we're okay with it. You know, like we're, we, it says, even though pain comes to us temporarily, because by the way, this is temporary pain. How long is our life? You know, teach us to number our days, Hashem, because if we're really thinking this is going to last forever, then, you know, we got to have a reality check like five minutes ago because we don't live in this condition forever. So, you know, it's given to us to live, you know, 120 years with the help of Hashem or 60 or 80 or something like that. But who knows? We don't know the time or the hour of the return of Mashiach. And we also don't know the day of our death. That's been 
concealed from us. So there is much that we should be aware of when we talk about temporary things and when we talk about everlasting things. Because when you look at what the word of Hashem is, it is everlasting. So if we're having trouble right now bearing up under the yoke of Hashem, because His yoke is easy, His burden is light, His word is not burdensome to us. It is actually life on life. It is everlasting life. And that's why when you say the bracha and you bite into the challah, you're just like, Hashemayim, for real, like right now. You know, when you light the candles and enter into the Shabbat, your your whole being just completely like goes into this whole new dimension. Like what just happened, you know, or sitting and studying Torah or rapping to feeling or, you know, um, any any of the mitzvot. I mean, come on, man, for real. So when we have temporary things that are causing us pain. It's okay. We bear the yoke and we don't worry. But if we're after our own pleasures and our luxuries, the lesson of pride of life, then, you know, that's where things come in and we can't deal with it. So may we be able to deal with it and may we pray for the end of this exile, pray for proselytes, pray for the return of Mashiach Yeshua, because we need all that. Okay, Rukashim. So I'm going to back up to the previous section because that was section seven in chapter two of Zohar. Shemot, now chapter or section six in that same chapter says, Rabbi Shimon opened the discussion saying, The word of Hashem was, and he says, Hayo Haya from Yehezekiel 1 1. Now, the beautiful thing about this, Bezrat Hashem, no, I don't have it. Ah. I was going to actually bring my little art scroll um, prophet for Yehezekiel because I love Yehezekiel. We're not supposed to have favorites, but Yehezekiel is my favorite. So if we go to Yehezekiel 1.1, it actually sounds like Yochanan 1.1, which is Bereshit 1.1. So he says in Yehezekiel 1.1, we have, uh, let's see here. The word of Hashem was, Yehezekiel 1.1, says, why is this word repeated twice? Let's look. Yeah, it says Yehezekiel 1.1. I'm not seeing it, but, you know, I need to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Well, that's interesting. All right, so uh, we're going to tab that and see what's the dealio with this section. So he says, the word of Hashem was Hebrew, Hayo Haya, Yehezekiel 1 1. He asked, why is the word Haya repeated twice? We should further ask why Yehezekiel revealed all that he saw as if he was, or saw if he was a faithful prophet. Should one whom the king brought into his sanctuary reveal what he saw? He answers, certainly, Yehezekiel was a faithful prophet, and all that he saw was by Emunah, and whatever he revealed was with the permission of HaKadosh Baruch and all was as it should have been. So, the thing about Yehezekiel 1, if we actually look at... Um, 
I'm going to go to the interlinear here. It uses vaihi, so which is from the word haya. Okay, so Strong's number 1961, and it says to fall out or to come to pass or to be. So I'm not really sure where the doubling of that phrase is coming in at, but let's read and see what else happens. So going on, we just read section seven previously, so now we're going to go to eight. And it says, Yisrael was accustomed to pain when descending into Mitzrayim for all the days of that righteous man, their father, were spent in pain. Wow. Therefore, they endured the exile properly and did not worry greatly. But the exile of Babylon was in complete pain. It was a pain for which both those above and below wept. Now, this is quite interesting because <clears throat> remember Messiah, Yeshua, he sent us out into this current exile that we're in. When you look at Matthew 28, which by the way, I am going to shout out to Neri Roke on this because he decided to share this like it was okay. Um, I've never heard the Basora elucidated like this, but check it out, sourced out and everything. Because, you know, Mashiach Yeshua says all authority was given to him, so I command you to go out and teach. Make Talmudim of the nations. Teach everything I taught you. Which, by the way, before I get into that elucidation, that right there should be like the end-all, be-all on is conversion something we need to do? Is proselytism a thing in Judaism? And should we plant our flag in Paul or should we plant our flag in Yeshua? And what I mean by that last statement is if you plant your flag in Paul, which means you only use the writings of Paul like Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians, Corinthians, Okay, if you only use that to justify your faith, to justify your theology, to justify your doctrine, you, by default, remove yourself from the words of Messiah Yeshua and the fact that all those fragmented letters, which are Paul's writings, so there's no way to say we have all of Paul's writings because we don't. Okay, you can even read 1 Corinthians and he says literally in there, that like I wrote to you before, and it's just like, wait, but this is the first one. Trust me, Lightfoot commentary on that says we're not really sure what other letters he wrote and corresponded to this congregation with. So, I mean, come on now. If we're if we're really going to grab a hold to fragmented text, that's not good. This is why Jewish literature is so important. This is why the oral Torah is so important, because it is not fragmented. The Torah itself is not fragmented. And therefore, when we look into the Besorah, when we look into, okay, so by the way, because I skipped over Haftarah, just so you know, Hasis Baz did bring down the Haftarah portions correspond to the Torah portions because the Haftarah portions concealed the Torah portions. So therefore, if you're studying the Haftarah portions only, for some unknown crazy reason, 
if you follow the Haftarah cycle, you will know which Torah portion it is. So just throwing that out there. So anyway, if you have fragments and you're trying to navigate this Amuna in Mashiach, then you have problems. But if you base everything from the Torah, if you base everything from the oral Torah, and you look into Slika, look into the Gospels, look into the writings, look into Acts, look into Revelations, you will have no problems whatsoever because you will start to find out a lot of what Paul shared is Jewish Halakha, Jewish Midrash, okay? He even alluded to the fact that he taught Kabbalah to his congregations. He says, the traditions that I've taught you, the everything that you've received from me. Anytime you hear the word received, that's where the word Kabbalah comes from, by the way, which is why when Yeshua was questioned, is Yochanan Eliyahu? And he says, yes, if you can accept it. Some translations say if you can receive it. So Kabbalistically, in other words, Hasidic Hasidut in a Hasidut framework, Yochanan is Eliyahu. But on a Peshat, Yochanan is not Eliyahu because Eliyahu is also a person. Yochanan is also a person. And reincarnation is not a thing. Okay, so there's all that. Or if it is, it definitely doesn't apply to that. But that's a whole nother subject and category that did not exist until the mid-centuries in Judaism. So trying to navigate and justify all that. Um, I, I, I'm tell you this. Talk to Rabbi Griffin and get you some. Okay. So anyway, uh, just want to bring that out and um, go back to. Uh, Yokana or Yeshua actually sending us out into this exile because this one thing he says to us, he says that <clears throat> the kavod which you have given me, I have given them, and that they may be echad just as we are echad, which is Yokanan 17 uh, 22. But I want to go back because. That's not the verse I was thinking of. But if we were a Chavod Hashem, you know, there, there's that. Because remember, the Shekinah is in exile. So if we're a Chavod with the Shekinah. All right. So where are we at now? All right. So Yochanan 14. Yeshua lets us know that we should not let our hearts be troubled. So it says, let not in verse 1, 14 verse 1. Yochanan 14, verse 1, verse 1. Okay. Let not your levavot, your hearts, be troubled. You have a Muna and Hashem also have a Muna in me. So back up. Um, Kepha is saying, I won't deny you after Yeshua is talking about he's going to be handed over and given and all that. All right. So. Calling to the bullpen for a second. No, it was in Yokonah 14. Okay, it starts in 27 is what I was really trying to get to. Okay. So, in this whole section where Mashiach is letting us know things are about to get a little cray. There's going to be some turbulence, but it's cool because everything's going to be all right. It's going to work out. It's going to be a little hard in the interim, but, you know, we're going to do this. 
So if you look at 27, he says, Shalom Hashem, I leave with you. The Shalom of Hashem. Him to whom Shalom belongs. That's Shlomo, right? So if you look at Shlomo, or if you look at Shiloh, that is all about the Shalom of Hashem. Okay? So... Mashiach is saying, this is what I give to you. I give you this wholeness. I give you this peace. I give you this uh, nothing missing, nothing broken. I give this to you. It says, my shalom I give to you. So the shalom of Hashem I leave with you, and my shalom I give to you. Then it goes on to say, not as the olam hazeh, this world, gives, I give to you, let not your levavot, your hearts, be troubled, nor let them be ones of morek lev, which is cowardliness, okay? So if we're back in our Zohar section, that the luxuries and our desires and pleasures that we have in this world, when we're going through our suffering, it causes us to just really just have issues and struggle with it. But if we're accustomed to it, then we'll bear up under that load. So this is the thing. It says that if you take my shalom in a worldly manner, you will be cowardly when trouble comes. Your heart will not stand firm. And when the pressure of the exile is on, you're out. Okay, so nobody leave, nobody be out. Okay, take the shalom of Mashiach Yeshua. Why are we holding on to a zit zit if we're going to freak out? I mean, I'm just saying. I mean, people have been asking me, you know, hey, Ahmed, how you doing? And I'm like, oh, you know, great. This is awesome. You know, and they're like, what? And that's my conviction because, you know, up until really this week, I've just been kind of feeling weighed down by the pressures of life. And I'm like, why? You know, and again, Haftarah this week is about the exile and we're in Shemot now. So I think that's what's the change is that, you know, you're not supposed to love it. So if you are having issues with saying you're doing great because you're trying to figure out how to how to be fine when people ask you, are you OK in a worldly way, then, yeah, that's not going to work out very well. But if you are in the shalom of Hashem, if you are really like, you know what? This exile is not good enough for me. I do not accept being comfortable in this. I do not accept assimilating to this. I do not accept it being okay that, you know, the temple's not built, that more proselytes are not made, and that Mashiach is not here. Okay, so we got to start getting into that mentality as a unified body, like not in a weird way, but I mean, we got to get there to where, you know, we need to be handling business every day. I mean, it's like six days we shall work and the seventh day we shall rest. And, you know, here it is in the, the times we live in where seven day, psh, whatever, we're on a whole different calendar. We have completed different holidays. And it's just like, well, did you know Jews have a whole different calendar, completely different holidays? And it's like, yeah, but you're weird and not everybody's Jewish and we don't do that. And it's just like, well, not yet. OK, because here we go. But anyway, we have to let our hearts not be troubled. Now, verse 28, 
You heard me say to you, I am going and I am coming to you. If you were having Ahava, love for me, you would have Simcha. Because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than me. Oh, snap. Um, that, That just happened. So there's this thing where it's like, okay, so if Mashiach's a manifestation of Hashem and like, you know, there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Torah, and Shekinah. Like, how does all this stuff work, you know? And it's just like, well, Mashiach has given us some clues here. He just said, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than me. There's this uh, com- completely beautiful picture here that if you go back to the verse about a Talmud is not greater than his Rebbe. This is something that is so incredible because we look at Memtet and understanding him as the Malak of Hashem, the messenger, the angel of Hashem. He is the Talmud of Hashem. And I mean, even in Messiah text, when it talks about Hashem talking to Mashiach, saying, you know, are you willing to die for the sins? of Israel and he's like not only for them but for every unborn you know okay I'm gonna pull it out some guarantee to to not say that appropriately uh let's see <clears throat> this idea suffering see if I uh, bookmarked it well I didn't bookmark it but Oh, I did bookmark it. Well, how about that? Right in front of me the whole time. Check this out on Pagina Cien E Cuatro 104. Bizarre Shem, I said that right. I'm trying to work on my Spanish. Okay. According to one of the most moving and at the same time, psychologically most meaningful of all messiah legends god when he created the messiah gave him the choice whether or not to accept the sufferings for the sins of israel and the messiah and the messiah and the messiah answered i accept it with joy didn't didn't yeshua just say sink over here I am going and I am coming to you. This is 1428 in Yochanan. says, if you were having love for me, then you would have Simcha because I go to the Father for the Father is greater than me. Right after he just said, only your hearts be troubled. So Mashiach is getting questioned here. Do you accept the sufferings? Do you accept his exiles? For Israel, do you will are you willing to be bound to the Shekinah? Okay, so Mashiach is sticking to his word. So if we're ever looking for a overlay, cross reference, or correlation for is the Mashiach of Jewish literature Mashiach Yeshua as presented in the Basora? Yes. Okay, because. Here, he's talking about having love and simcha and not letting our hearts be troubled through sufferings. Okay, 
And now over here, Mashiach says, I accept it with joy so that not a single soul of Israel should perish. See the excerpt from Pesikta uh, Rabbah. Okay, it says that's below. So we're going to go there next. And it says, wow. And it says, in a later Zoharic formula or formulation of this legend, the Messiah himself summons all the diseases, pains, and suffering of Israel to come upon him in order thus to ease the anguish of Israel, which otherwise would be unbearable. So, in in all this, the Messiah becomes heir to the suffering servant of God who prefigures or who figures prominently in the prophecies of Deutero-Isaiah, see chapter 1, who suffers undeservedly for the sins of others. So, yeah, Messiah was to suffer for the sins of others. Uh, the suffering Messiah is but a projection and personification of suffering Israel. So, yeah, there's your Isaiah 53. Uh, similarly, the leper Messiah and the beggar Messiah, with whom we have become acquainted, uh, are but variants on the theme of suffering Israel, personified in the suffering Messiah. Okay, the acceptance of Israel's sufferings by the Messiah eases the suffering, which otherwise could not be endured. Well, there's your picture of the children of Israel looking to Yaakov, their father, for the easing of their suffering in Mitzrayim. All right, but seek to Rabbah. Let's hit it. Okay, what we got? Ah, in that hour, Hakadosh Baruch Hu, this is page one thirteen in the Messiah text. In that hour, Hakadosh Baruch Hu says to him, Ephraim, my true Messiah, you have already accepted this suffering from the six days of creation. Now your suffering shall be like my suffering. Now Hashem just says that he suffers. So what is Hashem's suffering? For ever since the day on which the wicked Nebuchadnezzar came up and destroyed my temple and burnt my sanctuary and I exiled my children among the nations of the world, by your life and the life of your head, I have not sat on my throne. And if you do not believe, see the dew that is upon my head. So when the temple, the first temple was destroyed, the Babylonian exile began. The children of Israel exiled from the land. That is the equivalent of Hashem's sufferings that we look at when we talk about Mashiach sitting at the gates of Rome, wrapping his bandages with the lepers. For us in our present day and age, being in these trying times of the Golut, which is exile, it's a Hebrew for exile, of the Golut Edom, the exile of Rome, Hashem has already endured the same suffering. The next statement says, In that hour, he says before him, Master of the world, now my mind is at rest, for it is sufficient for the servant to be like his master. Pasikta Rabbah 162a. Completely 
corresponds, lines up with Yochanan 14.28, which says that I go to the Father because the Father is greater than me. He is my master and I am his servant. Okay, so now in verse 29, it says, And now I have told you before it happens that when it happens, you may have emunah. So the, the cool thing is, is Mashiach knows this is all going to happen. He sets us up. What, is we, what are we set up with? Shalom, connection, achad with Hashem, and bearing this burden of the exile. Okay? And then it says, No longer many things I speak with you, for the prince of this age is coming, and in me he has nothing. Okay, so no longer many things I will speak with you. So I won't speak with you any more things because the prince of this world is coming and in me he has nothing. But in order that the world, the ha'olam, the world, may have knowledge that I have ahava for the Father as the Father gave me mitzvah, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Okay, so he says everything is going to happen. Spoiler alert, exile, prince of the world is going to rule now. And there's nothing in me that he has. And that's the end of our conversation. But in order for the world to know that I have love for the father, as the father gave me this mitzvah, I do. So the testimony to the world that Mashiach has love for his father and the father has love for Mashiach is that the father gives the mitzvah to the son, which is Yeshua or us when we attach ourselves to him. Because, you know, being in Mashiach, we are called sons and daughters adopted by the spirit. You know, we cry out Abba father. Right. So anyway, so the father gives his child the mitzvah. And when we do it, that's a love completion. So the love of giving the mitzvah and the love of doing the mitzvah, which should all entail simka. And again, when we endure our suffering, we now bring ourselves underneath Hashem because he endured suffering. All right. So that was kind of a lot. And um, that was some Zohar. <clears throat> on Parsha Shemot. So now back to Zohar on Parsha Vaishev because that's where my original intention was. Because, you know, I found this cool thing in there because I didn't really dive into the depths of, uh, and these are the generations of Yaakov, Yosef. Like literally, uh, Bereshit 37 2. Okay, Genesis 37 2. Because in uh, the Zohar, which is, again, Zohar 2 on Parsha Vaishev, section 21, it says, These are the generations of Yaakov, Yosef. After Yosef settled in Yaakov, okay? So Yosef settled in Yaakov, which, by the way, is Yeshav, which is to dwell or to return, okay, 
to uh, how can two walk on the same path unless they agree? Okay. So when Yosef completely syncs up with Yaakov, it says, and the sun, which is there unpeen, mated with the moon, which is Nukva. So the sun and the moon is Zeranpin and Nukva, okay, or the husband and the wife. So they come together. He began to produce generations. So generations start when Yaakov and Yosef unite. Now, how do we know that? Because remember this one time Ephraim and Manasseh were Yosef's sons, but they became Yaakov's sons? And then not only that, they are called father tribes. So that way that the 12 sons of Yaakov or the 12 tribes include Yosef's sons. And then there are going to be great Kehilot congregations, which is from the word Kahal, which is where the word church actually like stepsister redhead like some kind of way got disconnected from. Okay, Kahal is the word. It should not be church. Okay, this is like going past Ecclesia. Okay, and this is like we're getting deep right now. Okay, so getting back into family is what we're doing. That's right. So that right there is the unification of Yaakov and Yosef. Okay, so that's when he began to produce generations. And who is he that brings forth offspring? Who is the he that began to produce generations? It says, the scripture continues saying, Yosef, for the river that flows and comes out of Eden is Yesod. Because remember, there was a river that flowed out of Eden and watered the garden. When you look at the whole Bereshit account, it's the garden of Eden, not the Eden garden. Okay, so like Eden is a place and then the garden is outside of Eden. Okay, so that's a whole nother thing. But the garden is connected to Eden by this river. And it says that this river is Yesod and that is designated Yosef. So the connection point is Yosef. So Mashiach ben Yosef is the one who creates generations. Okay, this is why we're called new creations in Mashiach. Okay, and our foundation, which is Yesod, literally is righteousness. And not to mention, when Yosef was born, Raquel uttered, may Hashem add for me another son. Okay, and then there's all the Midrash that goes with that. Then it says, it is he who is the progenitor of the offspring because his waters never cease to flow with an exclamation point. So then all of that happened, right? So now this is where I just completely just, oh my gosh. Section 23. These are the generations of Yaakov, Yosef. Another interpretation is that anyone who gazed at the facial image of Yosef thought it was the facial image of Yaakov. Come and behold, it is not written this way when referring to any other children of Yaakov. For example, it is not written, these are the generations of Yaakov, Reuben, or Shimeon, etc. 
only in reference to Yosef, as is written, these are the generations of Yaakov, Yosef. The reason is that the facial image of Yaakov was the same as his father's image. There's that. So now I want to look into the Midrash Rabbah. See what we got here. So Midrash Rabbah on Shemot. Big old book. All right, so one of the things that I wanted to do, which I'm not sure how this is going to happen or if it's even going to, but with the help of Hashem, may it happen. There's this thing about when Mashiach comes, he's going to be a reincarnation of Moshe. And I'm like, again, with the reincarnation people, what is the deal? Like, why can't like we just really get back to the old school, just like like the Talmudim of Mashiach? Like no one walked around talking about reincarnation. Like, what is the deal? So, um, anyway, it says that this is in the Midrash Rabbah, which I'm like, why in the world is this in the Midrash Rabbah? So, I'm going to be in the Midrash Rabbah, and it says it's Midrash Rabbah 4.2. So, the uh, the outline and the way that the Midrash Rabbah is put together is kind of interesting, to say the best, or to say the least. So... Uh, so yeah, let's let's see here. So Mighty Hover is so amazing. He took pictures of this and he sent it to me. So Mighty Hover, for real, Toda Raba. Uh, second of all, for some reason I did not uh, see anything in there about reincarnation. So. I'm going to uh, see what's going on here to uh, figure out where's this mysterious Shemot Rabbah 4-2 coming from. Hmm. All right. Okay, so there's that one. Okay. So the Midrash states, it is the first, or is the first, or Moshe is the first redeemer, and he, his soul reincarnated as Mashiach, will be the last redeemer. Shemot Rabbah 4.2. This statement links the souls of Moshe and Mashiach together. So this is from Rabbi Trugman. Okay, so what I'm thinking is he is talking about if we go to Shemot chapter 4 and verse 2, that should give us a clue what you would think. Uh, Shemot 4.2 would be that. Okay, so we're going to back it up. Back it up. Okay, 4.6. 4.4. Four. Four, one through 3. Alright. Hmm. Okay, so talking about Moshe and the serpent and him fleeing from it says, a certain matron once said to Rabbi Yossi, my God is greater than yours. He said to her, how so? She replied, because <clears throat> when your God revealed himself to Moshe at the thorn bush, Moshe merely hid his face. But when he saw the serpent, 
which is my God, immediately Moshe fled from it. Rabbi Yossi replied to her, may your bones wither. Wither. Okay, wow, that's uh, intense. It says, the two cases are not comparable at all. When our God revealed himself to Moshe at the thorn bush, he had no place to flee. From where could he have fled to? Or from where could he have fled? To the heavens or to the sea or to the dry land? Look at what is stated with reference to our God. Can a man hide in concealments and that I not see him? The word of Adonai. Do I not feel the heaven and the earth? The word of Adonai. Yermiyahu 23, 24. But with respect to a serpent, which is your God, once a person runs away from it, two or three steps, he can be saved from it. Therefore, it is written, Moshe fled from it. All right. Interesting. A little scenario there. Yeah, so not really seeing anything on here. He saddles up and he rides the donkey, so let's look at that section. Hmm. All right. So I don't like Donkey Kong. Okay. So this is Shemot Rabbah or Midrash Rabbah Shemot 5. It says, so Moshe took his wife and his sons. Why did Moshe take his wife and sons along with him to Mitzrayim? So that they would be together with Yisrael to receive the Torah. When Yisrael would be redeemed from Egypt. Okay. Then it says, he mounted them on the donkey. This is one of 18 texts that the sages changed for King Ptolemy. And that's it. That's all we're going to get. The Gemara, Megillah 9a, recounts that King Ptolemy uh, placed 72 elders of Israel in 72 separate cubicles and demanded that they write for him a Greek translation of the Torah. And by the way, wouldn't you happen to know, that's where our fast of Tibet comes from, the 10th of Tebet. We uh, mourn about that. Torah translated into Greek for the king. And uh, yeah, motives behind that were not to keep Torah. So that was uh, that was sad. Okay, so not seeing any Mashiach things here. Uh, one of the things, by the way, is the staff. Um, Midrash Rabbah 6, Hashem said to Moshe, when you go, the Midrash identifies the wonders mentioned in this verse. Because it says, when you go to return to Mitzrayim, see all the wonders that I have put in your hand and perform them before Pyro. So now, of which wonders was God speaking? If you say God was referring to the miracles of the staff returning into a snake, Moshe's hand contracting leprosy and the water of the river returning to blood on dry land, why HaKadosh Baruchu instructed Moshe to perform those miracles only before Yisrael, not before Pharaoh. That's that's ninja right there. He said, do those before Israel, but do these other wonders that I put in your hand before Pharaoh. So what are we talking about? 
says, and furthermore, we do not find anywhere in scripture that Moshe performed those miracles before Pyro. Nice. Rather, what is meant by all the wonders that I have put in your hand? It refers to Moshe's staff upon which the 10 plagues were written. For on the staff was written the acronyms Dzak, Adash, Bechav. HaKadosh Baruchu said to Moshe, The plagues that I have placed in your hands, you are to perform them before Paro using this staff. It's insanity. All the plagues are in the staff. They're in the hand of Moshe. And the staff is called Memtet. Zohar uh, breaks that down later for us. So uh, just go through some footnotes real quick. The first word of the acronym, so looking at Dzak, it says these are the first three plagues. You got the Dalit, the Sadi, and the the uh, the Kaf. Okay, and when you have those letters, it says this is for Dom, blood, and Zephardia, Zephardia, which is frogs, Kinim, which is lice. So that's the first word. The second one which is a dash. This is the Ain, the Dalit, and the Noon, okay? Which is a rove, which is wild beasts. Dever, oh, pestilence, come on now. Dever is the same letters for Devar, which is word. Like, so the pestilence, so if you look at pestilence and word, <clears throat> this is very, very interesting because... <clears throat> Devor is also wasp or bee, okay, which has this intention of like stinging or pollination, okay. So then you got Dever, which is pestilence. So now, if you look at the word of Hashem, what is it to you? Is it pollinating us or is it stinging us? Is it sweet honey or is it just like really irritating us? Like, what, what is the word to us? So, I just thought that that was a little interesting uh, sight here to see the Hebrew. And, by the way, wild beast is the same as Erev, like Erev Shabbat, you know, or the evening as it comes on to the morning. And the Erev is a kind of overtaking darkness time. Hence why, you know, we enter into the Shabbat with the light of the three days. You know, the Orhaganus. When you look at the, the candles that are kindled, that's called the light of Mashiach. So, yeah, there's that. So anyway, um, the primordial light that shone from the first day of creation was hidden away and was given to us on the first Shabbat. And now the only time we get to experience it is during the eight days of Hanukkah and on Shabbat. So there's all of that. But anyway... You look at how like a wild beast is the darkness that overtakes. So and then the word uh, Shekhin, which is the the sheen for what we're looking at, uh, Adash, because we got the Ayin, we got the Dalit, now the sheen says it's Shekhin. OK, and then um, that is boils. All right. Then we have the third word, which is Be'achav, 
which is the bet in the aleph and the chet and the bet. Okay. So we got barad, okay, which by the way is a rearrangement of the word davar. That's crazy. So you rearrange davar and it can become hail, like hailstones. Okay. Interesting. And then you have Arbe, which is the locus. And then you have Choshek, which is darkness. And then you have Bekorot, which is firstborn. So those are the acronyms that is on the staff. So anyway, I just want to do that. Um, by the way, so footnote from earlier says he used to take the staff in his hand. And it says that Scripture refers to this staff as the staff of God because God instructed Moshe to always carry it with him. See below in Midrash Shabbat 26.3. Accordingly, this verse is to be read, and Moshe took the staff that God had commanded him to take always in his hand. All right. Okay, so maybe this is it. Maybe this is it. The insight is talking about the Redeemer's donkey. Now, this is Midrash Rabbah 5, and we have an insight. Okay, so the insight popped up with reference to footnote, um, footnote 40. And footnote 40 is talking about him mounting the donkey, and it ends with that um, Ptolemy, the sages translating the Torah into Greek. So check this out. The footnote keeps going and it says that miraculously each of the elders arrived at a common decision about how to translate various words and passages that might anger Ptolemy or create misconceptions in his mind. And then, oh, wow, that's insane. With respect to our present verse, the Gemara there explains that instead of translating the phrase al hakamor as on the donkey, the elders translated it as on a carrier of men. Wow. <laughs> Rashi there explains that the elders did not want Ptolemy to taunt Israel that our teacher Moshe did not even have a horse or a camel at his disposal, but had to transport his family on a lowly donkey. Now, remember how Mashiach came riding in on a donkey, right? So when you think about the fact that all of us in Messiah Yeshua and him being the Yosef from which all generations flow because he's a river that never stops flowing. So we're in Mashiach. So therefore, the picture of Moshe putting his family on the donkey, when Mashiach is on the donkey, we're all on the donkey with him. Should we be found in him? We're all on a donkey with him. I just think that's very interesting because we all need to be riding on the donkey. And it's like, is there a room for 600,000 plus people? Well, I think yes, because Mashiach is equal to Israel, if not more. But anyway, we know that Moshe is equal to Israel. Uh, Rabbi Griffin just threw a shield out on that one like, uh, like that was okay. Man needs to get some help. Okay, but anyway, uh, it says, Rashi there explains that the elders did not want Ptolemy to taunt Israel, that our teacher Moshe did not even have a horse or a camel at his disposal, but 
had to transport his family on a lowly donkey. That's cool, Zechariah 9-9, man, come on. Ibn Ezra, to our verse, however, suggests that the elders did not want Ptolemy to taunt Israel, that Moshe transported his wife and two sons together on a single donkey. See the insight. Okay, so why indeed did Moshe choose to return to Mitzrayim at the slow pace of a donkey instead of hurrying to the people's rescue on the swiftest of steeds? This makes me think of how, um, you know, when Yaakov and Esau met in Parsha Vayishlach, and Esau was like, well, come on, let's go to Mount Seir. And Yaakov's like, no, you go on ahead. I'm going to go slowly at the pace of, you know, the children and the animals and, you know, the little ones and things like that. And remember, the place that Esau is going, that's his final, like, stop. Like, this is it. I've made it. This is my holy land. It's Mount Seir. It's like Mount Seir is a place of idol worship. Literally, goat demons are on Mount Seir. Like, they're worshiping and doing all that stuff on that mountain. And it's just like, what? You know, and so then you got this idea that, you know, it says in the commentary that, you know, Esau or Yaakov will catch up with Esau, you know, but it will be to take the mountain. It won't be to like stay there and dwell on it because we have to go through exile in order to attain the land of Israel, which is then the Keher Tumash and Parsha Vayishlak and the Hasidic Insights. And so Esau, not wanting any part in exile, wanting the blessed, the best and the 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 blessed. Yes, the best and the blessed of this world and not the world to come. You know, that's why he went there. Because on Mount Seir, everything's awesome. Any dumb, everything's awesome. You know, that's why it's like, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. And as Lecrae said, well, then if I do that, then I'm going to die like I'm in Romans too. So there's that. But anyway, that's uh, some old mixtapes that are running through my head talking about Rome, and you talk about the Roman road to salvation, I mean, come on now. If we're looking for salvation, it's not going to be found in Rome, because Rome is going to be destroyed. Have Has anyone read Obadiah chapter 1? It's only one chapter. It'll take you to another place. If you look at that chapter, it says the house of Asaph, the house of Rome, the house of Christianity, it will be straw and stubble. It will be consumed in the fire. Yaakov's the fire. Yosef's the flame. So anyway, slow pace, moving on. That's the pace of the donkey. Hashem is not slow in keeping his promise, as some of you might think, but he is desiring that no man perish, that all may come to Yeshua, that all may come to salvation. That's why we're on a donkey. We want people to come to salvation. Now, <clears throat> it says, it was not a matter of whim or expense, for the Messiah too is described as a humble man riding on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. Evidently, there is a deeper significance behind the leisurely means of locomotion. Maharal explains that the donkey as the coarsest of creatures embodies materiality in its purest form. That is why it's called Chamor, a name modeled on Chomer. Chomer 
the Hebrew term for materiality. By riding on a donkey, on his way to performing miracles of the Exodus, Moshe demonstrated his mastery over and disassociation from the material world. Come on! In the world, but not of it? Or in the world, and we own it? Okay, like, man. Mashiach was riding on the donkey, saying that I've overcome the world because he told us, take heart. My shalom I give to you. I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have tribulation. Come on, man. Bring that back. Bring that back. Yokanon. Boy, you, you with me today, Yokanon. You, you got me going. Okay. So take heart. I have overcome the world. All right, let's, let's get it. All right, so we're going to jump to 16 and 33 on this. 16, 33, coming right up. Okay, first of all, 31, because remember this whole thing about Amuna, like you need to have that. All right, so just for the sake of context, he says, and now I have told you before it happens that when it happens, you may have Amuna. Let's pick up in 16, 31. He answered them, do you have Amuna? He nay, behold, a hour is coming, and it has come that you are scattered, each one to his own home, and you leave me alone, but I am not alone because the Father is with me. So Amuna will cause you to not scatter. But anyway, these things I have spoken to you that in me may you have shalom. That in me you may have shalom. Yochanan 14, 27. Shalom Hashem I leave with you. My shalom I give to you. Not as the world gives I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let you, nor let your hearts be cowardly. You heard me say to you, I am going and I am coming to you. If you were having a munim, or if you were having love for me, you would have simka. You would have joy. Okay? So he's doing all that recapping, tying it up, linking it up over here. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have shalom. So this is Yochanan 16.33. In this world you have tribulations, but have a gladdened and rejoicing heart. I have conquered the world. I ride on the donkey. You can too, if you have shalom in me, okay? So if you're in me, you'll be on the donkey, and you'll have these tribulations, but you will have a heart of great rejoicing, okay? says, these things I have said, or these things said the Rebbe, Melech Hamashiach, and having lifted up his eyes to Hashemayim, he said, my father... The time has come. Give glory to your son, that the son may have, that the son may give glory to you. And since you have given him all authority over all flesh, for this purpose, in order that all which you have given him, the Father may give to them eternal life. And this is eternal life. What is eternal life? I'm glad we asked. And this is eternal life that they may have knowledge 
of the only God of truth and Yeshua HaMashiach, whom you sent. In other words, this is eternal life that you may know the Father and his Messiah, the one whom he sent. All right, so this is uh, it's crazy. So now back to a long time ago, I said I was going to read something from Neryah Rook. That was probably over an hour ago. <laughs> so here it is, because we just got back to it with all authority. So this kid, Neryah Rook, is our Jewish Green Lantern, and uh, he totally went there with this. He says, Matthew 28, 20. Matthew 28, 20. Well, what, what is that? It says, all governmental authority in Hashemayim above and on the earth below has been given completely to me by the ancient of days because I alone was found worthy until he makes my enemies a footstool for my feet. And you, on the other hand, as I wait patiently for my enemies to make teshuva, because, you know, that's the enemies being a footstool is when they make teshuva. That's uh, okay. Anyway, so, and I wait patiently for my enemies to make teshuva. You go to all the nations. Go to the goyim. Go to the Gentiles. Go to the idolaters. Go to the pagan worshipers. Who are my enemies? And, and then it says... Um, Make Talmudim, okay, Talmudim, make disciples, those disciplined to live lives of conversion. Yeah, conversion daily. Making Talmudim, those disciplined to live lives of conversion daily. Okay, I don't know about you, but when you convert and you think about living like that on a daily basis, okay, come on now. This is why Mashiach says count the cost of what it is to be a Talmud. And this is why we have to every single day deny ourselves, lose our lives for his sake. Okay? He didn't write that, but I'm adding that. Okay, so anyway, it says immerse them in a mikvah. Okay, when you immerse somebody in a mikvah, they become a Jew. I'm just saying. Just especially if they have a heart of repentance and they don't enter into the mikvah with a serpent in their hand. Okay, because there's people that do that where they don't really have pure intentions and they go immerse themselves. And it's just like sages literally codified that it's like them going to the mikvah with a serpent in their hand, like holding it. So if you're doing a mikvah, but you have no plans on converting, you have no plans on making teshuva, you have no plans of any of that. That's what kind of mikvah you're undergoing, a mikvah of the serpent. Like, you're just holding it in there. You're just washing off some dirt. But you're not getting transformed. You're not getting changed. But if you're going into the mikvah for the sake of being disciplined and converting, for the sake of making shuva, for the sake of following after Mashiach, okay, now we're talking. It says, immerse them in a mikvah for the sake of the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh, and teach them to keep Shomer. Oh, okay. Teach them to keep Shomer. So after they've been transformed, they're in the unified names of Hashem. Now, teach them also to be Shomer. Because with their Amuna, they need to be doing something about it. And then it says, 
all that I have commanded you at Har Sinai and now in your presence have clarified and confirmed. This kid. Okay, so teach them to be Shomer. Everything that you've learned from Mount Sinai and also the secrets of the Torah that I've expounded upon as you've walked with me. Teach them that too. Teach them the oral Torah. Teach them the Torah of Mashiach on top of the Torah from Mount Sinai, which is the Jewish literature, the written in the oral Torah. Teach them all that. Okay. Teach them to keep it, not just teach them and be like, okay, cool. Because I'm going to go ahead and swerve over to uh, one of Shaul's writings, his letter to the Romans. He talks about everything was written for our instruction. Um, let's see here. Stand by. Yeah, Romans 15, 4, Brukshim. says, for as much as was written beforehand was written for our limude kodesh, our holy learning, okay? Our sanctified, consecrating learning. In order that through patience and through nechama, through the nechama, okay, through the corrections and through the comfort. Now, this is pretty cool because nachum, okay, corrections by comforting, like through the patience and the corrections. Okay, wow, this is just beautiful. That we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Okay, so everything was written beforehand for our learning, our holy, consecrated learning. Some translations say, for whatsoever things. You know what translation that is. King James. Melik Jimmy, for show. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Just want to point that out there. If it was written, we should be doing it like the Torah, the books of Moses. It was written beforehand for our instruction, set us apart, consecrate us. And now Neri Arok is talking about Matthew 28, just verse 20. It says, everything that I've commanded you, teach them to keep Shomer. All that I've commanded you at Har Sinai and now in your presence have clarified and confirmed. All right. The oral Torah and the written Torah were written aforetime for us, okay? It was written a long time ago. So we need to be paying attention to it. Now, it says, And see, I am with you to fulfill this calling and instruction. Okay, so the thing is, is Mashiach saying, You will have success in doing this because I'm going to be with you. Then it says, All of the days from this point in time until the end of the age, when I execute this authority given to me upon all Adam's children, like all mankind, basically, to the observant eternal life and to the disobedient everlasting contempt and shame. You can reference Daniel 9, Tehillim 1.10, Daniel 12 and Jude 1, and Yeshiahu 63, and Revelation 5. Neri Arok. 
I told you this before, I'm going to say it again. The most epic translation, elucidation that I've ever heard on that verse in my entire life. Now, back to the Midrash Rabbah on the insight about the Redeemer's donkey. It says, because, you know, Shemot chapter 4, when Moshe is saddling up and heading back to Mitzrayim to go save the people, that is the picture of Mashiach Yeshua preparing himself to enter into Yerushalayim for his final, uh, I guess, his final ascent to uh, bring in salvation. So uh, very, very significant here that Moshe going to Mitzrayim is like Yeshua going to Yerushalayim. Moshe going to Mitzrayim is like Yeshua going to Yerushalayim. I was just making sure I said that right because it sounded like a little rap for a second. Okay, Rukashem says, Yarot Devash, which is from Jerush 12, page 212. That's the source. Yarot Devash. Sounds like a delicious um, meal option at a bakery. Okay, anyway, notes further that the Egyptian heathens who led vulgar lives steeped in material pleasure are compared to donkeys. As scripture states, Yehezekiel 2320, their flesh is the flesh of donkeys. So anytime we look at the donkey, we're looking at vulgar material pleasures, Egypt. Now remember, by the way, too, Shona Pink has brought this down last year about the acronym of the exiles that all of the exiles are prototyped in Mitzrayim. So Mitzrayim itself is the exile of Babylon. Mitzrayim itself is the exile of Persia. Mitzrayim itself is the exile of Greece. Mitzrayim itself is this final exile that we are in. And what do we see? Mashiach is on the donkey. And if we're in Mashiach, we're in it. Mashiach says, I've overcome the world. And if we're in Mashiach, we overcome the world. Okay, just line it all up. Follow the bouncing ball over the words at the bottom of the screen. Okay. Thus, the picture of Moshe mounting his family on a donkey to return to Mitzrayim symbolized his dominion over the Egyptians. Okay. <clears throat> so there's this whole thing about the wisdom of this world is the foolishness of is foolishness to Hashem. Okay, and I just want to bring that out. Uh, okay, so we're going to go from to the letter uh, to the Corinthians. The first one, we don't know. But anyway, uh, it's 1 Corinthians commonly said. Okay, 1 Corinthians 3.19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written... Oh, it's written. Okay, so Shaul is about to quote some Torah. Are you ready? As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. I wonder where that is written. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek when I'm saying that. Uh, first of all, it is uh, 14.8. Oh, I'm just checking out some footnotes here. That's pretty cool. All right, but anyway, back to our uh, topic at hand. About to bring out Shomer Blue. Let's see what we got in Mishle 14.8. Shomer just quoted 
something from the Torah. Okay, so 14.8. It's hard to think that Shaul was really anti-Torah when all he does is quote Torah. And he just said that everything that was written before time, like before our time, um, is for our instruction. So anyway, uh, 14.8 says, The wisdom of a clever person is to understand his way. But the folly of fools is deceit. The wisdom of a clever person is to understand his way. He displays his wisdom by giving thought to what he should do. That's Rashi. So that he does not act impulsively. And that is Mazudot. Alternatively, fools will advocate guilt. Such people will always find fault in others and promulgate stories about their shortcomings. Since they are flawed people, they project the same flaws onto others. They are like flies that gravitate to poop or filth. Sleeka. <laughs> That's for Doc. Good people, on the other hand, will look for the good in others. That's from Share to Shuba. Share Shuba, okay. Now, let's get into more context here. Then if we look at catches the wise and their craftiness. So see what the uh, do we have access to the amplified? I think we do. We got access to whatever we want. I think. Well, at least we'll we'll just um, yeah we'll just do this. All right. Okay. So now they're saying Job five thirteen. So now if we go to Job five thirteen. Let's check that out. <clears throat> Just want to uh, shout out to the podcast. I told our Rabah for y'all uh, hanging in there on this uh, very, very um, intense. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this podcast this week. I mean, we're we're going everywhere. I mean, this isn't this isn't our normal normal ML. So. Yeah, I just appreciate you. Just want to shout you out there. Okay, so going into Job. Let's see what we got in Job. Chapter 5. Some Rashi commentary. He takes the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the crooked is hasty. Rashi says, any counsel that is planned hastily is foolishness. So, um, yeah. Well, Bergesham. Where are we at here? All right. <coughs> Some other verses to keep in mind. It says that um, in Yaakov 3.15, such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Okay? So... If you are looking at what we're talking about here, crafty and the wisdom and the all that kind of stuff that does not flow from Hashem, it ain't good. Uh, and then 1 Corinthians 1.19, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Okay, so... That's also in Mishlei. That is, uh, 
Well, Mishlei 14.8 really is the same thing. And then we got uh, Mishlei 21.30 that says, No wisdom, no understanding, and no counsel can prevail against Hashem. I.e., it's going to be destroyed. So uh, then let's check out where they're going here. All right. So 1 Corinthians 1.19. Let's look that one up. Boom, boom. So now we got Yeshiyahu 29.14. Oh, go figure. That's this week's Haftarah. Aziz, I'm sorry. Just not really getting into the Haftarah, but to get into the Haftarah, 29.14. Behold, I will continue to perform more wonders against his people. Wonder upon wonder. All right. So, hmm. Isaiah 29, 14. The intelligence of the intelligent. I will destroy the wisdom there. Okay. So it says in the commentary from Maharikara, it says, In a stinging rebuke against the deception of the people, and thinking that their outward piety could fool him, God responds that he will respond to them measure for measure. Okay? Wonder upon wonder is, i.e., punishments beyond those mentioned above. And what is wonder upon wonder? They try to conceal their inner rot from heavenly eyes. So the wisdom of its wise will be lost and the understanding of its sages will become concealed. Wisdom, i.e., facts, is the basis of knowledge, understanding. People interpret facts to deduce further knowledge. But when the wise men lose their wisdom, the sages lack the foundation for sound understanding, and their derivations will be erroneous and even dangerous. Understanding, okay, so people interpret facts to deduce further knowledge. But when the wise men lose their wisdom, the sages lack the foundation for sound understanding. So when you lose your wisdom, when you get rid of the base of your knowledge, so what does that mean when you get rid of the Torah? Because that is wisdom. That is the counsel of Hashem. So then it says, the loss of wise men is twice as serious as the destruction of the temple and all the curses written in Devarim. For in those curses, the Torah says, in Devarim 28.59, Hashem will make the blows against Israel. Extraordinary. Thus, where the Torah describes the defeats and ravages of exile, including the destruction of the temple, the root, Pele, is used only once. But here, in speaking of the loss of wise men, the Torah uses the word twice. So that's Rashi and Yalkut Shimoni 2, uh, 436. So yeah, so when we're talking about this donkey, we're doing something that is completely not seen as wisdom in the world's eyes, but that's to their confounding. And it's also showing the slowness and the persistence and the preciseness of Hashem's plan. So then it says, uh, so let's go back. So thus the picture of Moshe mounting his family on the donkey 
to return to Mitzrayim symbolized his dominion over the Egyptians, a dominion soon to be realized through the events of the Exodus. Wow. According to this explanation, it is clear why the Jewish elders under Ptolemy omitted this detail, for they feared that Ptolemy, king of Egypt, would perceive the symbolism and take offense. Well, yeah, if he was smart. And then it says, in a variation of this theme, Shavile Pincus, Parsha Bo, 5773. Wow, Shavile Pincus. This is who I call Shonuf Pincus, and he is codified in the Midrash Rabbah. Uh, wow. So anyway, Shonuf Pincus then, and his Parsha Bo from 5773, cites the great Kabbalist, Moshe, or Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, see Orhayakar Pakude, volume 2, page 285, who maintains that the donkey represents the trait of laziness as epitomized by Egypt, an aversion to activity in the service of God. The donkey represents an aversion to activity in the service of God. By perching himself on top of the donkey as he traveled to Egypt, Moshe demonstrated the Jews' ability to conquer this negative trait. Sin crouches at the door, but you can have dominion over it. Hashem said that to Cain right before he killed Abel. Abel was like, or Hashem said that to Cain right before he killed Abel. So Cain was like, I can't because I'm not Abel. Anyway, that was a terrible pun, and I don't even know why I reversed that and said it again. But what this is showing us here is the picture of Mashiach riding on a donkey. And if we're in Mashiach, we overcome aversion to godly service. Come on, man. It's on like Donkey Kong. So then it says, an ability. So the ability to conquer this is an ability that would be crucial for their acceptance and observance of the Torah. So if you can't overcome your physical flesh, if you can't overcome your physical desires, you're not ready for the giving of the Torah. This is why in the Brit Hadashah, we don't see follow Torah explicitly, do the works of Torah explicitly. We see it alluded to, we see it hinted to, I mean, if you did a Google search, I'm going to do it right now for Torah in the, in the Brit Hadashah. Let's do it. Bible Hub is up, typing in Torah. So when I type in Torah and I hit the NT, New Testament button, it doesn't come up. But if I hit the OT, it comes up as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So... Uh, so there's that. So we have to overcome aversion to service of Hashem. So that means we've cracked the, the, we've cracked the nut, as Rabbi Griffin would say. Cracking open the shell of the klipa, we're finding out that aversion to service of Hashem is what separates us from Torah observance. So if we are anti-Torah, we are not really into the service of Hashem. That is hard to say. But man, come on. 
if you rather celebrate some winter holiday that has nothing to do with the Bible and you're loving all the festivity and the cheer and the the artificialness of it, but yet you won't stop and celebrate Sukkot. You won't stop and change your life and celebrate Shavuot. You don't even know what any of these holidays are, but you know about Xmas. You know about Schmeister. You know about Smalentine's Day. And you're all about it. You're all caught up in it. But Tuba Shabbat, Tuba Av, Tisha B'Av, Yom Kippur. I mean, come on. If you don't want to get into that, the light is shining right now so hard. Okay, but the, the beautiful thing is you don't have to stay there. You don't have to be upset about it, okay? Because you don't. Because Mashiach came in riding on a donkey. He didn't suffer just for Israel. He suffered for the entire world, okay? Like, that means anybody who is in a negative place with Hashem, that's who Mashiach suffered for. He is still suffering for. <clears throat> so ride the donkey. Get on the donkey right now. You can do it right now in Mashiach Yeshua's name. Tell Hashem you want to get on the donkey right now. Just do it. Just do it. Just let it go. Okay? Because it says this is crucial for the acceptance and the observance. You have to accept the Torah and you have to observe the Torah. And if you're at that point, you've already entered underneath the hoopah of Hashem. This is why Hashem lifted up the mountain of Sinai over the people, not to crush them. They could have gotten crushed had they not accepted the Torah, but it was a hoopah. Hashem is so baller that he takes a mountain and turns it into a hoopah. And what do we do? Oh, we just take a tallit and, you know, put it on four poles and we're like, all right, Baruch Hashem. Hashem's like, no, I'll, I'll do that with a mountain, you know, and I'll have the temple builders be the ones that hold the poles. You know, Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David, and Melchizedek, and Eliyahu, you know, those four people. The four craftsmen, not to be confused with the four horsemen. But anyway, poles are in, and that's what's up. Okay, so... Moving on, it says, thus what might have appeared to Ptolemy as an attitude of laziness toward executing the redemption was actually the subjugation of laziness in its Egyptian incarnation. All right, show enough, Pinkus. It says, a different approach is taken by Rabbi Abraham Mordechai Alter. It says, the Imre Emet of Gur quoted in Lukute. Yehuda, to our verse, the sages teach that there are many Jews in Mitzrayim who, being comfortable with their position in exile, had no interest in a redemption. That's the thing. Do we have any interest in redemption? We got to ask ourselves, honestly, do you have any interest? Are we just comfortable here, chilling in America? Do we not want to go to Israel? Do we not want Mashiach to be returned? Do we not want the temple to be rebuilt? Do we not want the land to be redistributed so that everybody has their inheritance? You know, anyway, um, 
They were comfortable with their position in exile, had no interest in the redemption, and therefore would not merit to see its coming. Moshe's heart ached. Lapid, may our hearts ache for these endangered Jewish people, for the anything within us that doesn't yearn for redemption. May our hearts ache. It says, and he deliberately progressed slowly towards his goal in the hope that they would use the extra time to reconsider and repent. In the future, Mashiach will use the same tactic to include as many Jews as possible in the final redemption. You know, we're going to end on that note. <laughs> Pun intended, because that was a note. So, um, I, I guess my goal was to talk about why in the world would they say that Mashiach would be, or Moshe's soul would be reincarnated when Mashiach comes into Mashiach. But, if we really look at what what's behind all that, if we get past that outer exterior and, and the non-reincarnationness of it, basically what is going to happen is what we see through Moshe is what we're going to see in Mashiach. And what Moshe began to show us is what Mashiach will finish to show us. Because, you know, he who began a good work will finish it. So I can understand how Moshe and Mashiach are tied together like that and through this donkey and all that staff of God and everything in his hand. The same aching that Moshe has for giving time for those who don't want to be redeemed to change their minds, to make teshuva, to change their lives, become new creations. Mashiach is the same way. So you can look at it really as it is with Yaakov and Yosef, it is also with Moshe and Mashiach, is that Yosef, as we studied in our Zohar portion, he settled in Yaakov. And so Moshe has already settled in Mashiach. And so now, here we go. So I know that's kind of crazy and that's kind of out there, but you know, Baruch Hashem, because it's Parsha Shemot, and it's going to just go up from here. You know, as we get closer to Mashiach's return, more and more illumination is going to pour out. So, you know, Baruch Hashem and may Hashem increase our vessels to be able to receive it. May we be given new wine scans to receive that new wine. And may we clothe ourselves in Mashiach Yeshua. Father, I pray that you will help us as Lapid to stand firm, to not let our hearts be troubled to bear this exile, knowing that Mashiach has granted us your shalom and his shalom, and he is in your presence interceding for us, and the Shekinah is in exile, and we attach ourselves to your Shekinah, HaKadosh Baruchu. Help us, sustain us. B'Shem Mashiach Yeshua. What do we know? What do we know? Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu Torah emet, vechaye olam natabetokeinu. Baruch atah Adonai, notein haTorah. Amen. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, may you send Mashiach Yeshua speedily and soon to us in our days, and rebuild the Beit HaMikdash, and gather in all the lost sheep of Yisrael from the four winds, and the merit of Mashiach Yeshua. Amen.